Morning, church. Uh, it is nice to be here and not elsewhere. We're starting a new series, and uh, I've taught through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I think it's a decade now, um, that a period each year teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And during the last 10 years, um, that's had lots of different titles. But I wonder if a helpful way of naming what God is doing amongst us as a people, if the series was called something like Following a Christ-like God. Following a Christ-like God. For those that aren't aware, the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll turn there. It starts in Matthew chapter 5 and goes all the way through to Matthew, the end of chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount amongst the early church was the most quoted passages of Scripture. It what it is to take Christianity practically. And with the short amount of time that we have this morning before we will gather around the table, what we want to do is name two ways that are less than helpful when it comes to reading the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, two ways which point us to a God which is less than Christ-like. If we do our work today, uh, we won't merely have new ideas or some nice theories or have deconstructed maybe some toxic theology uh, picked up from an experience in previously in your walk. But instead, we'll come to, to gaze, to look upon the beauty of Christ and think about what if, let's just put it like that, maybe, maybe faith is just what if. What if God is like Jesus? What if to be made in the image of God means that we are created in the image of a God who is revealed in Jesus? What if to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, is to live into that image in such ways that as we come around the communion table, we receive what we are. This is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. What is it to relax into that love in such ways that this no longer becomes about striving or trying to manipulate reality uh, as if it was a workout program um, and treat life as something I can control over, but what is it to relax into who we really are, what God is really doing, and find ourselves caught up in the joy of a God who delivers by grace? And as a way of starting, I'm going to read a passage which isn't found in the Sermon on the Mount, but refers to the Sermon on the Mount that others might be more familiar with than the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to start at verse 16. Then I'll pray and we'll open this up in such ways that I hope for today, my, my prayer for today is that um, we can relax into what God is doing in this moment and ask ourselves the question, what if God is like Jesus? If God is like Jesus, what parts of our theology need to change? What parts of how we understand ourselves need to change? How we look at others need to change? If God is like Jesus, how does our understanding of where everything is going need to change? 
Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Lord, as we open up this passage this morning, regardless of where we're coming from, we ask for the kind of attentiveness and the kind of spaciousness that we could relax into what you're doing right now. Holy Spirit, do your will. Do your will, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would take these words and you'd fashion them into something that would point us to the reality of what you're present to do amongst us. We pray that this morning there'd be the kind of revelation that would happen for people, that they would see that your love is their destiny, that your love is our destiny, that your love is who we're made in the image of, and what you're calling us into in this moment is so much more freeing and life-giving and energising than any program or theologies that we would construct to seek to control reality and manipulate it. Lord, we ask that we would see Jesus, see him clearly, and have handed back to us what it is to follow you in ways that surprise, in ways that bring life, in ways that make us relax and give thanks. We pray this in your precious name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. According to the church calendar, this is Trinity Sunday. Um, Trinity Sunday is kind of a funny name for a day in the church calendar. It's like having a Jesus Sunday. It's like, well, isn't every Sunday Jesus Sunday? Uh, Trinity Sunday... Um, is one of the days in the church calendar that I'm not huge on, in part because what often happens in pulpits such as this one on Trinity Sunday, preachers try and explain the Trinity as if the Trinity was something to explain. The, the Trinity is a very precise way of speaking that witnesses or confesses this reality. God is Christ-like. God is Christ-like. The, the Trinity is a way that the early church started to speak in such ways that wasn't merely about a social program. And some of you who are familiar with 20th century theology will know what I'm referring to in terms of Maltman's program, that the Trinity becomes a model for social liberation uh, or uh, Florenza or, or others, that Trinity becomes a way of actually showing a, a picture of what the world can be. And the danger with that is that it does too much. Instead of leaving us in the space where we can actually relax into something that we don't quite understand and in fact is incomprehensible but does get swept up and contained in this reality. God is Christ-like. So rather than the Trinity being a way of saying uh, this is our social program, instead it's a way of actually questioning all other social programs. So Trinity is actually a guard against idolatry for those who are new on a Sunday, idolatry is a way of worshipping something that is less than God. 
And the irony of the doctrine of the Trinity is that it doesn't give us so much that we can start with a program where we're confident, but it leaves us in the kind of place where the disciples find themselves right here in this passage. Did you notice that they believed, but somewhat doubted? Now, to, to make it explicit, this is the pinnacle of Matthew's gospel. This is where the whole thing is ending. There are more people in this room right now than there were in this scene. In terms of the 11 disciples, they're there, they're encountering the resurrected Christ and somewhat doubt. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how firm your understanding is this morning. Here's the good news. It's not about your understanding and it's not about whether you believe or doubt. But can you be in the kind of space where the resurrected comes to you in such a way that your understandings of God must answer to what is revealed in Jesus? And so instead of giving you a firm place to stand, it actually invites you into almost the vertigo of grace. Oh my goodness, my understanding of myself, my understanding of my neighbor, my understanding of my enemies, my understanding of the stranger, my understanding of God, all has to answer to the love that's revealed in Jesus. Idolatry is making something God and saying God is like this. And what the doctrine of the Trinity asks us to do on this Trinity Sunday as we start this series and what it is to follow a Christ-like God is that all our idols actually get revealed that what lies behind them is a power play of meaninglessness. That if we continue to try and build our lives around our neat theologies that will bring success, victory, that I'll live as a conqueror instead of a more than conqueror. If we don't lay down those power plays, we can't step into the power of this moment and what's going on. A couple of weeks back, we looked at on Ascension Sunday that Ascension isn't about Jesus is now elsewhere, but Jesus is now found everywhere. Pentecost Sunday, we see the power that rose Jesus from the grave is now poured out on a messy people who somehow are taking part and witnessing to that the God revealed in Jesus, is remaking our world. One of the things that Sanctuary has put as centre in the life of this community is terms like deeper, wider, and different. Part of deeper discipleship is going deeper into this mystery that don't too quickly run off and make a program. Don't too quickly run off and make it a way of affecting things and changing things and making a difference. Instead, what is it to actually become the kind of person of grace, the kind of person of prayer, where we're marked by the kind of humility that we're living in the vertigo of grace, realising that everything in our lives and our world needs to be reimagined in light of the love seen in Jesus. This passage, Jesus deliberately takes them back to what they couldn't understand, and now, in light of him being resurrected, they're asked to reconsider. Discipleship isn't a program where we get a bunch of principles and then you try harder to put them into practice. Discipleship is what it is to undergo the kind of grace where we become what we are by relaxing into the love that is more powerful than our idols actually bring death what is it that this isn't a power play but an invitation to play with a different kind of power 
a power which is free of coercion, a power that instead is actually mercy, that love is the greatest power available to us in the universe. Some of you know in terms of um, some of my formation that um, people like Reverend Jim Lawson, Reverend Jim Lawson, uh, some of you um, might have seen The Butler and uh, Oprah Winfrey's in The Butler and I can't remember, who's the actor who was in Grey's Anatomy with the blue eyes who plays Reverend Jim Lawson? Jim Lawson is the man who taught Martin Luther King the practice and the technique of nonviolent social change. Uh, some of the incredible experiences I have and the work that I've done is I've not only trained under him but actually led workshops with him. This is the man who Martin Luther King trained in nonviolent social change. Martin Luther King referred to Jim Lawson as um, the greatest strategist and tactician of nonviolence in the world. Reverend Jim Lawson says, Nonviolence is the greatest power available to us because nonviolence is the power of Jesus organized. But first, we have to start in this vertigo that what we're being called into in this vertigo of grace that doubters and believers are welcome and they're taken back. Do you notice where does Jesus take them back to? Then the 11 disciples went to where? Galilee. And in Galilee, they go to a particular place. Where? A mountain where Jesus had told them to go. What's the mountain? When we read in chapters 5 through to 7, it's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel because Matthew's Gospel's arranged the largest chunk of Jesus' teachings found in Scripture in three chapters, and they happen on a what? Mountain in what area? Galilee. Jesus is taking the Great Commission. Jesus takes us back to the place where he says, this is what it is to participate, not submit yourselves or surrender or even necessarily the first step being obedience, but actually to participate in a reality that on Trinity Sunday, we're confessing that God is a relationship of love that father has nothing to do with gender, that son has got nothing to do with um, anything other than coming from the source, and that the spirit proceeds, but that's not a directional thing. Jared, what are you saying? I'm saying that oneness is not about numeracy, nor is threeness, that these are realities where we name a mystery, and we can't do too much with it because what it actually asks for us is to look at Jesus. And that's why when people have too clear a theology of the Trinity that doesn't bring you to the place of awe and mystery, you will do something with it and you'll start to worship your theory of the Trinity rather than discover a God who is Christ-like and be left with that what we encounter in the Old Testament, God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And what we encounter in the New Testament isn't a new and improved God. That my friend Brian Zahn would put it, that God has always been like Jesus. We have not always known this, but now we do. But Jared, what do we do with this stuff that welcome to where the early church sat, not with an idol or a theory, but in the experience of the vertigo of grace? Oh my goodness, the God we worship is like Jesus. What does that do to your doctrine of hell? 
What does that do to your understanding of the cross? What does that do to how you understand? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, asks us to love our enemies. Is that because God loves God's enemies or God is asking something from us that God does not do? How you answer that question will determine how you relate to the Sermon on the Mount. Is the Sermon on the Mount the place where the resurrected one sneaks up on us and invites us back to what we couldn't understand until we understand that death is not the greatest power, love is, and that there is a power, a force revealed in Jesus that is more powerful than what we think is the last word. And Jesus takes us back to these teachings and says, now we're going to play with them again and play with a different understanding of power. Because the Almighty is all vulnerable and God's all vulnerability is actually what real might is. What are we talking about? We're talking about a mystery that should bring us to worship instead of a theory that fits nicely in our pocket where we tell other people, you need to become like me. That's never how discipleship works. It's always we've been called by grace, empowered by grace, to live the grace that we can become like him. Can you see how it's subtle, but it's so different? I've heard so many sermons on the Great Commission. And I think we need a more Christ-like commission, because that's what this is. There is no way to share the Great Commission when it's simply about making more believers, because apparently doubters are welcome here. You don't believe this week? That's okay. Apparently you're not saved by your understanding of grace, but by grace. Believing is showing up in the kind of way where you can go, God can work with this. I don't need to force this. I don't need to engineer this. That's real faith. We're scared of that. And so we sing songs, wonderful songs, a lot of them. But we also need to sing the Psalms that we don't sing. Jesus is not being unfaithful where he sings faithfully the 22nd Psalm. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or why have you forsaken me? Depending on your translation. Who do we see pray that on the cross in Matthew's gospel? There is an expression of doubt which is actually faith because we know it's not about our certainty, but God's faithfulness. And when you encounter the resurrected one, that's the kind of place it takes you to. I know how counterintuitive that sounds. So ironically, it's not your understanding or your deconstruction of your previous understanding, but Jesus, who is the gospel. So we find we're taken back to the very place where Jesus invites us to participate in the life of God, the mystery that is God, God as Trinity. And Jesus says, all authority is where? Where is it located? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to. So the authority for faith, where do we put our trust? Because you're like, Jared, is there no certainties? Of course there's certainties. Jared, is there no safe place to stand? Of course there's safe places to stand. But the safe places where to stand aren't our theories about where to stand, but where Jesus gives us. Let me give you Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. 
those who hear these words of mine and participate in them, put them into practice, do them, are like a wise person who built their house upon a rock. This is Jesus saying what we're to build upon. So it's not like, oh, okay, the Trinity is this mystery, incomprehensible, so where do I stand? Participate in the love that saves you by living that love in the power of that love that raised Jesus from the grave. Storms will come. The rain will fall. The waters will rise. But your faith will stand. Because discipleship is the call to participate in the mystery that God is Christ-like. All authority has been given to Jesus. Is the Bible authoritative for us? You bet. Not because of your 19th century doctrine of infallibility, but because of Jesus. (laughs) This is a Jewish book. Those of us who aren't Jewish, the only permission we have to claim this as our own is because we've been incorporated in Jesus. You don't get to tell Jesus how to interpret Leviticus. Jesus tells you. That's why he's Lord, because all authority is being given to him. So apparently, part of this journey of following a Christ-like God is we have to give up and give away our idols where God needs to be something that is ironically safer for us. A God who is love is incredibly threatening for most of us, even those of us who have had wonderful childhoods, great parents, because we live in systems, be they family systems, government systems, social systems, where we understand manipulation. We understand that people respond in ways that are negative or positive based upon how we are. And so if we do certain things, we think God is going to respond in certain ways. But apparently the reality that God is Trinity means that God is always Christ-like. There is nothing you can do. There is no sin so grievous that you can change God's nature that God would be anything less than Christ-like. And that is terrifying for some of us because when we sit in the reality that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more, some of us have built our whole lives on achieving in systems where we make people love us by doing the right things. And some of us have lived our whole lives being told we're worthless in systems that we never can do the right things. And to sit in a reality that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more and that there's nothing we can do to make God love us less because what Jesus reveals the Holy Trinity to be is a community of love. All we're left with is, well, what do we do now? If it's not about my level of faith, but I'm actually still invited if I doubt, well, what am I to do now? And we find out that the gospel isn't about us either about our depravity or our perfection, but it's actually about God's goodness and desire to transform all things. All authority has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go. And in the Greek, it can read, as you go. As in, as you go about life. There's something energizing about go, mission, purpose. That's good. Some of us need that. 
And it's right. But it's also as you go, as in as you go about life. What would it be to go about life in such a way that all authority is given to one who is crucified and somehow that is real power? What would it be to go about life in such a way that our idols of control, where we try and manipulate reality and manipulate God, we actually confess they have no reality behind them other than what we give them? All our games, all our climbing, all our seeking to be better than others, all of that is the age that is passing away and a new reality is broken in. And suddenly we find ourselves in the vertigo of grace that a new world is coming about, God's salvation of all things, God's transformation of all things, and it comes through suffering love, which is ironically stronger than those who make others suffer. The Great Commission is a call to follow a more Christ-like God because it's the only God we get. Therefore, go and make disciples. Not believers. Of course, believing is, is great. This is an, not anti-believing, but the problem with uh, when we talk about belief is it's your belief. Um, I don't, can, this isn't my most pastoral moment, but I don't care what you believe. I, I don't care what I believe. I shouldn't be left to decide what Christianity is. I'm messed up. I need Jesus. You know what I believe? The Apostles' Creed. Why do I believe it? because it's what the church has witnessed to. So what, what do we at Sanctuary believe? The Apostles' Creed. Why? Because it is the witness of the church to this reality of a mystery that isn't a way of forcing or manipulating or doing some kind of magic so we make life turn out right, but what it is to undergo the love that we're made in the image of, the love that at Calvary saves us, the love that on the third day rose from the grave, the love that is poured out on us at Pentecost, the love in terms of the ascension that is not elsewhere but reigns at the centre of everything. It is that love that Jesus shows us. And it's not a theory. It's not a belief. It's who God is. It's who God is. And if it doesn't bring you to worship, we will have to pep ourselves up. We'll have to convince ourselves we believe more instead of relaxing in what it is to participate in who we truly are, given back to us by grace, that we might regain what John Christostom called our ancient beauty, that we are made in the image of God. Not just us, everyone. So not believers and not converts, but the word there is what? A disciple in a Jewish sense is one who does what their teacher teaches them. And we think student-pupil kind of relationships in terms of Western education. Jesus isn't a white Westerner. He's a Middle Eastern Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation. And so as a rabbi, what education means is being formed in something that you do what your rabbi does. Participate in who your rabbi is. And so that's why Jesus can tell Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's also an invitation in John, what, 14, 9, 
Come and participate in what I am. Come and join what I'm doing. Christianity is never about believing seven propositions before you get out of bed in the morning and that's what it is to be faithful. It's to participate in the love that has saved you, that will save all things that we see fully revealed in Jesus. That's what grace is. Do you know in the Eastern Church, one of the ways that they refer to grace is grace is the uncreated energies of God. Grace is another name for the third person of the Holy Trinity. Let me slow down so you make sure you get what I'm saying. Grace is the Holy Spirit. To be saved by grace is to be saved by God. Our lives, God longs for them to run on grace. To run on the Holy Spirit. What we're being invited into as being disciples is to follow a Christ-like God where we realise that God is this dance of love and that creation has left this dance and become subject to decay. But God has not forgotten but in Christ has reached out and created a way for creation, all of creation, to come back into that which we were made for. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 says that God will be all in all. That's why Habakkuk and Isaiah can say, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. How do the waters cover the seas? The waters are the seas. God will be all in all. And discipleship is the invitation for that all to be realised in you, by you giving up, giving over, and participating in the love that saves. I'm aware of the time, so we'll move through a little quicker as we finish. Of all nations, it leaves no one out. That's really important. Right back to Abraham, blessed to be a blessing. The purpose of God finding a people is to bless all people. If election for you is about my privilege and me being special, You've fallen for a lie and a deception of the enemy. Election is about vocation. Election is about service. Election is about you have been called to show the world who God is. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But Jared, what's the obey bit? What hill has Jesus asked us to go back to? What teaching did he give there? You don't have to guess what the obey is. There's 14 or 15 commandments, depending on which scholars you're going to lean in which direction in terms of the Sermon on the Mount, in terms of those particular Greek imperatives. But there are particular things that the Sermon on the Mount asks us to obey, and we don't obey them out of a sense of must do or can't do. As we finish, the two options which are completely unhelpful throughout church history when we've forgotten that this is actually a call to participate in the life of the Trinity, that we're actually being saved to become who God gives us and announces that we are. On one side, it's the must-do camp. 
So the Sermon on the Mount is there to show you that you must do these things. And the problem with church history is some people haven't done these things. And in part, it's right, but where it comes from. The must-do camp has sophisticated ways of doing this and not so sophisticated. And sometimes there are, you must do these things and then you're a real Christian, a hardcore Christian, a faithful Christian. And so this becomes a death-dealing legalism of if I do these things, then God will bring revival, then I'll be loved, then we'll whatever, fill in the blank. And on the other side of that, knowing how death-dealing, you have another camp which says the can't do. So you can't really love your enemies. And the only reason Jesus says to love your enemies is because God has dependence issues and needs to keep God's self in the picture. So God says, do what you can't do. So you realize that you suck and then you need grace. So this camp over here, we become legalists. In this camp over here, God is a legalist. And so do you understand the right theory of grace? Do you understand that? So over here, it's all about our perfection. Over here, it's all about our depravity. And you hear it in certain church circles. And some of you might be discerning in your own background the places you came to faith. Is it like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Here's another weekly reminder that I suck. Or is it do better, do more, do more, do better. And over here, this can be more sophisticated. It can be like, do better, and the better isn't like the length of your skirt or how your hair should be cut or um, uh, uh, how you do baptism or the particular way that we worship or whatever. Instead, it's like, are you serving the poor? Do you can care about social justice? Do Not bad things, but like all idols, we take what is good and we worship them like they could save when they can't. What sanctuary is not about is another sophisticated way of doing the must-do. We will not approach the Sermon on the Mount as things you must do or else. Nor will we teach you can't do. So grace, cheap grace, Bonhoeffer would call it, is just there to answer the fact that we can't follow Jesus. Instead, we're invited into God does. Not must do or can't do, but God does and does through you. Grace longs to move through you. The grace that saves you longs to be the power that animates your life to witness to the grace that saves all things. What we're saying is that this is about following a more Christ-like God. This is about following the only God there is who is Christ-like. And the Trinity protects us from this must-do legalism. And it also protects us from the apathy of a can't-do dependency. And instead invites us into, you know why we love our enemies? Or to quote Paul, while we were still enemies, God loved us. That's the mystery we're invited into. I'm aware of the time. And you know I could go on and on and on. But I'm not. I'm going to pause here so we can come around the table. The rest of the time we will spend in this series, following a more Christ-like God, we will help us name the can't-do and the must-do ways that Jesus is saving us from. So we can hear that the Sermon on the Mount is God longs to live God's love through you, the same love that saved you. We're coming around the table.
Maybe you have never said yes to that love. I have good news. God's like Jesus. God's always been like Jesus. We might not have realized that, but, but now we do. The invitation to the table today is to become what you are. A child of God. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that the firm place we would stand would be the place you invite us. Send us back to those places and those things that we once maybe didn't understand. And there in your resurrected presence, would you teach us again how you take broken, problematic people like us and make us a people of grace and of mercy, showing the world a Christ-like God. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, yes, so the question is, what does breaking of bread mean? And the definition of this is to share a meal with somebody. This expression means more than just eating. It's sharing a sense of brotherhood with someone or with a group of people. It is a significant event that fosters some meaningful connection and cooperation. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, it says, It is not the cup of a blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not the bread which we break, a sharing of the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For all we partake of the one bread. And then 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25 says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, according to the Bible, Christians participate the Holy Communion in remembrance of the body and the blood of Christ, that it was broken and poured at the cross. Taking Holy Communion does not only remind us of his suffering, but also shows us the amount of love Jesus had for us. So let us just stop for a minute, thinking about our lives in general. How many times do we pray to our Lord Jesus, asking him either for forgiveness or to help us through our awkward situations? When we are sick, asking for healing, and the list just goes on and on. But how many times do we thank him? Do we thank him for all he does in our lives, for what he has given us, what he's done yesterday, what he'll do today, and what he's likely to do tomorrow. So what this means to me is breaking of bread is a time to give our Lord Jesus thanks. And this, I, I think, is so important that when we pray, do we often be still and let the Lord listen to us? 
Or do we just babble on and ask him for different things? So this morning, I ask next time you pray, remember to thank him. Thank him from the bottom of your hearts for everything he does in your, in your lives. Not Sometimes things aren't good in our lives and we think, well, why do we deserve this? Or what have we done to deserve this? But if you think about it, the outcome is always good. It's done for a reason. If you brought down to your knees, he's doing it for a purpose. And they also say that if, if your life is good and nothing is happening to you, then something's wrong. Um, so when things aren't going the way that you want them to go, just be obedient, ask for forgiveness, and pray to the Lord and thank him and the blessings will follow. So now, as we gather to break bread, let's thank him from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you.